Dear Father, we come to you again with thankful hearts that we are your children, that you have called us, chosen us, that you have made us in the image of your Son, and that the process is continuing day by day, week by week. And we know, Lord, that in many instances the process is painful, often because of our own stubbornness, our own folly. Lord, we're so grateful that you never leave us, you never forsake us, you're always with us, and even as we study the life of Abraham, of Sarah, of Lot, and these other individuals, we see in them many times the attitudes and uh, worldliness and fleshliness that we experience in ourselves, and yet at the same time, we see what you did in them and through them, and how they were transformed by your power. Lord, we ask you to transform us today. The scripture teaches us that as we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more you know how to give and will give the Holy Spirit to us as we ask you. And so we pray that your spirit will be present with us today, that he will open our eyes and ears to hear, and the scripture will be made strong in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You should have page 39 and page 40. We'll finish 39 and move on to page 40. I'd like to uh, read, let's back up and begin with verse 16 of Genesis 18 to sort of remind us of the circumstances which we will be looking at this morning. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. He said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, O oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the account of the twenty. Then he said, O oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose there are 
Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Great example to us of what it is that we are to be about. The Lord and two, quote, men were travelers. And Abraham invited them to his tent for a meal and for rest in the heat of the day. And in the conversation, the Lord, one of the, quote, men, said to Abraham that his wife would bear a child within a year of that particular time. And of course, we read the account last time, uh, Sarah heard it within the tent, it was said for her ears, and scripture teaches us that she laughed within her heart, that the idea seemed ludicrous to her that uh, she should have a child being as old as she was. But God didn't come just to deal with Abraham and Sarah relative to the coming child or the promised son. He came also to test Abraham and to discover whether this man would serve as an intercessor, whether he would reflect this Christ-likeness, if you will, in his character. And so, as we read in verses 16 through 21, God said out loud, speaking to the, quote, two men that were with him, uh, shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Well, obviously, it was intended for Abraham to be concerned with the, with, the, with the statement. And so, he instructed Abraham that he was about to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness there. And that gives us the, the background for this this passage that deals with intercession. Here is Abraham at his godly best as an intercessor. I don't think that you or I or any Christian who has ever lived is more acting in the will and the way of God than at the point that he or she is serving as an intercessor. This is the first record we have in Scripture of an intercessory prayer. It is not the last. There are many of them in Scripture. In this, Abraham demonstrated four things, and I have listed them for you under number four towards the bottom there, A, B, C, and D, and we'll be talking about these over the next few minutes. He demonstrated, first of all, earnestness. Abraham didn't just say, well, I'm supposed to pray, so I guess I'd better pray for Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he was earnest in his prayer because he cared. Now, certainly he cared because Lot and his family were in the city. So he had a, 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 a definite reason to pray for the city. Well, that's all right. It still meant the prayer was, was earnest and he was committed to intercession. We discover that in this we have an act of persistence, do we not? Starts out with 50 and he works all the way down to 10. He persisted, he wrestled with God in prayer, if you will. We often use that word, oh, I wrestled all night with God in prayer. What does that mean? Did we really wrestle all night with God in prayer? Is God reluctant to answer our prayer? I don't think so. What we mean by that, of course, is that it took a long time for us to really get ourselves to the place where we understood what we were doing and we were earnest and sincere about what we were doing. We see here in this uh, account of intercession the reverence that Abraham had for God. He gave God the honor due to his name. 
And he doesn't demand anything of God. You probably have all heard speakers who tell us that we're supposed to tell God what to do and demand things of God because, you know, that's our right and our prerogative. And I don't really think that's what the Scripture teaches us at all. We come humbly before God and we bring our requests before God, not our demands, because He is sovereign. And we are but, as Abraham said in this, this account, dust and ashes. I mean, who are we anyway? And then finally, we discover that he demonstrates something of, of an understanding of the character of God. That's particularly true in verse 25, where he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Whatever Abraham knew about God, now remember we've studied the life of Abraham as much as the scripture records it for us, and we know that he came from a pagan background. The scripture tells us that Terah, his father, and those before him were worshipers of idols. And they lived in the land beyond the river in Chaldea, in ancient Sumer. Uh, they came from Ur, a, a great trade town of the Sumerian civilization. The, the last great center of the flowering of Sumerian culture was at Ur. And Abraham, in the process of the years of growing up, at some point encountered God while he was in Ur, and then encountered God again at Haran, and followed God to Canaan, God's leading to Canaan, and, and God met him several times, and we've read those accounts of the, of the theophanies, of where, where God manifested himself to Abraham. And during that process, he didn't have a scripture to study. You and I can study the scripture, and we can discover the character of God. He had to discover it by his daily walk and by the encounters that he had with the living God. And in those encounters, he had already come to know something of the character of God, to know that God didn't treat the righteous and the wicked alike. And he displays that understanding in this time of intercession. One of the important things that this account teaches us is how much God honors the single righteous person. We don't have to be a vast horde of righteous persons to get the ear of God. One person can get the ear of God. One righteous individual. Um, you go back to the time of the Reformation in the study of church history, and you know that one of the themes that Martin Luther hammered home was the priesthood of the believer. Because, of course, the, the church in those days was the Roman Catholic Church. And the, and the teaching was you couldn't approach God except through a priest. And Luther was saying, but we are, because the scripture teaches, priests before God. And Jesus Christ is our high priest. And we have the right to go directly to God individually. And Abraham demonstrates that understanding even in this particular passage. He single-handedly interceded for thousands of people. And God listened to him. The scripture teaches that we're to be the salt of the earth. How much salt does it take to provide for preservation? Apparently not much in the spiritual sense of the word. Because the indication here is that if ten righteous had been found in the city of Sodom, that God would not have destroyed the cities of the plain. If ten righteous amongst thousands, certainly the cumulative population of the four cities that were destroyed, Sodom, Gomorrah, Admon, Zeboim, if those, 
if the total population certainly came to thousands, and yet if ten righteous had been found there, God would not have destroyed the cities. Ten righteous would have provided the salt of preservation, spiritually speaking, for those cities. What that teaches us is that no matter how few we may be and how weak we may feel we are in our walk as a Christian, we are individually of great significance in the eyes of God. God cares immensely about you and I as individuals. He doesn't look down from heaven and say, well, I see the church down there, and I love the church. He says, I love you and you and you and you and you individually, and I care deeply for you individually, and I will hear your individual prayer. It's also clear from this passage that Abraham viewed God not as the God of just Abraham and his clan, but as the God of all men because he refers to God as the judge of all the earth. Now, Abraham obviously didn't have an understanding of all the earth as you and I have an understanding of all the earth. Uh, we live in a day and age where we're really uh, blessed in the sense that we can have a visual image of virtually all of the nations of the world today. And we could be familiar with the fact that there are uh, over 200 sovereign nations out there. And within those sovereign nations are numerous, numerous tribal groups and, and ethnic groups. And Abraham didn't know that. Abraham didn't know there was a North American, a South American, and Australia. And he didn't know the relationships of Europe and all these kinds of things. But he knew that God was sovereign over all the earth, whatever was out there. There are those who try to argue that Moses was influenced by an Egyptian king in writing the Pentateuch and that uh, Amenhotep IV, who was supposedly the heretic king in Egypt, who himself declared that the sun, meaning the ball in the sky, was not just the God of Egypt, but was the God of all the world, and therefore the Hebrews became aware of the fact that maybe there's a God for all the world and not just their own little tribal God. I don't think so. Because Moses is recording the attitude of a man who lived long before Amenhotep IV. And we have to believe that Moses is recording what Abraham truly said and truly believed. Abraham understood that God was the universal God, not just the God of a tribe or a people. In the 22nd verse, the very first verse of this passage we're looking at right now, we read that Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Interesting statement. Still standing before the Lord. It teaches us, first of all, that as Hebrews tells us, Abraham became, or came boldly before the throne of grace. All of us are familiar with Hebrews 4.16, which says simply, Let us therefore draw near with confidence or boldness to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, that boldness doesn't mean we come demanding before God or that we stand before God saying, Oh Lord, we're, I'm so important, you've got to listen to me. Well, that's not what it means at all, and, and we understand that. It simply means that because we have been made children of the king, we have the right as princes and princesses 
to come before the king to make our request. And we need not do so with fear or trepidation. As Abraham stood boldly before the Lord that day, not because he thought it was anybody, because he said, I am but ashes and dust. He understood his place and that he was willing to stand before the Lord and to still stand before the Lord. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He continued to stand before the Lord. In verse 23, we read that he came near to God, that he probably walked up close to this one that he had come to know, although he was in human form, was Yahweh himself. And in so doing, he fulfilled the requirement for intercession, which you read about in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance. Assurance of what? Assurance that He hears us. We know that He hears us. Not because in our flesh we are worthy, but because He has accorded worthiness to us because He has accredited to our account justification. Abraham dared to ask God to change his express plan. Abraham had heard from God the implication that God was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if they were as wicked as he had heard they were. Now, we noted this last week, that God put it in that way because that way Abraham would understand. Obviously, God already knew what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew how many righteous were there. He knew if the city was wicked or the cities were wicked. But for Abraham's sake, he stated it in that way. And... Abraham thus responded accordingly. Why did Abraham dare to come before God and to ask him to change his plan? He did so because, as he expressed in the account, he didn't believe that a righteous God would destroy the righteous with the wicked. His tenacity, he hung in there 40, 35, 30 20, 10. He hung in there. And, and that is a, a direct uh, obedience to a scripture, which he, of course, didn't know about. But we're taught in the scripture in Luke 11, verses 9 and 10. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives lost my place here. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it shall be open. And of course, you've all heard messages on this passage, and, and you know that the Greek of, of this passage tells us that everyone who asks, and the implication is, continues to ask, seeks and keeps on seeking, knocks and persists in knocking, to him will come the answer. And so Abraham is persisting here tenaciously hanging on for the sake of those cities of the plain, for the sake of his nephew Lot and his family. Abraham petitioned God six times. And each time he reduced the requirement 
for the salvation of the cities. And each time, how did God answer? In the affirmative. Okay. If there are 30, I won't destroy it for 30. If there are 20, I won't destroy it for 20. If there are 10, I mean, God's answer was almost, it wasn't matter of fact, but it almost sounds like matter of fact. No, he didn't go hemming and hawing and say, well, let me think about this, Abraham. I don't know, Abraham. No, he just says, if there are only 20, I won't destroy it. If there are only 10, I won't destroy it. Just straightforward answers to Abraham's intercession. Now, why, and this is the question you've probably heard asked many times, why did he stop at 10? Why didn't he work all, I mean, he, he had at least a little hope that there was one, <laughs> you know, that Lot was there, and that Lot had some degree of righteousness to him. That was at least Abraham's hope. Why did he not continue on down below the number of 10? Was it because he couldn't believe that there were fewer than 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah and Admon Zeboim, and Zoar too, for all that matter of fact? Possibly. Was it that he was afraid to push it any further? You know? I mean, he had pushed it all the way 50 down to 10. Was he afraid to just push God that much further? Possibly. But God had answered so quickly in the affirmative, there was really no reason why he shouldn't have continued on. I think the answer is in that God simply cut off the conversation at that point. God didn't just step back and say, well, now Abraham, are you going to ask further? God just cut off the conversation at that particular point. And that seems to be what's implied here in, uh, in verse 33. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, who, now it doesn't say as soon as Abraham had finished speaking to him, as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Now how did the Lord depart? Did the Lord just start walking away down the hill? Did the Lord just vanish? Doesn't say. We assume he probably started walking down the hill in the same path that the two angels had already traveled. God, it seems, cut off the conversation. God did not allow Abraham to go any further in his intercession. Abraham had passed the test. I mean, the purpose was to see if Abraham would demonstrate that godly characteristic of intercession. If he would stand in the gap, as it were, and so he did. Now, God is going to answer Abraham's prayer. God is not going to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. Just as Abraham had said, can the God, the judge of all the earth, destroy the righteous with the wicked? No, he won't. And he didn't. It's just that there was only one righteous person. And yet he would actually save three, ultimately. Okay, let's look at chapter 19. This means we move to page 40 of your outline. Most of us discover this to be one of the more disgusting accounts in Scripture, but it's here for our edification. Let's read the first 11 verses. 
Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of, the, of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, gathered or surrounded the house, both young and old, all people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do, not, only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. This chapter begins with the words, Now the two angels. <laughs> just as if we're supposed to know all about these two angels. Now the two angels. It's just like we've been already talking about these two angels. But had we? Who were these two angels anyway? Well, the answer certainly is back in verse 22 of the previous chapter where it says, The men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So the three, quote, men who had eaten at Abraham's tent had walked over to the little hilltop looking down into the, vale, the valley of uh, the Salt Sea and Abraham stood before the one whom he knew was the Lord, but the other two now continued on down the hill towards Sodom. So the two that were with the Lord walked on down the hill, leaving Abraham and the Lord in intercession. The first verse of chapter 19 here tells us now what we suspected all along, I think, as we read through the 18th chapter, that the two men who were with the Lord were angels. So we have the Lord and two angels meeting there with Abraham. We're told in this passage that the two angels arrived in the evening. Now, is this the evening of the same day of the intercession? Is this the evening of the day where they had been resting up at the tent of Abraham and now were departing after the heat of the day was gone and it was later in the afternoon toward, and had they gone down the hill and walked all the way to Sodom in that one short period of time? 
Well, if it is the same evening, they used their supernatural angelic powers to make the transition. As soon as they were out of sight, they must have just vaporized and then reappeared down by Sodom because there is no way they could have walked in natural human way from that hill to the, to, to the gates of Sodom in that period of time because it's 50 miles and the terrain is rugged. I mean, you're not walking down a freeway. You're walking down 4,000 feet of escarpment into this valley over rugged terrain, dry, rugged terrain. Those of you who uh, saw the television series years and years ago called Masada, that was actually filmed on the location of Masada. And looking at that, you saw some of what the terrain is like in that part of, the, of, of Israel. And it's not the kind of terrain you just kind of go gallivanting down. It's rugged stuff. Obviously, it's not important as to which day this was. It could have been two evenings later, three evenings later. We're not told. Whatever day it was, the point is that they arrived at the city before the business day was over. They arrived in the evening, but life was still going on. And Lot was still sitting at the gate of the city, probably with many others of the so-called elders of the city. Now, to sit at the gate of a city in those times generally meant that you were a person of some significance in that city. It might even have meant that you were a magistrate or possibly even a judge. And later on, of course, they make the reference, are you a judge? You know, who has made you a judge in our midst? Now, does that imply that he was a self-made judge, you know, literally in the city or not? Maybe, maybe has nothing to do with that. But he was sitting in the gate of the city, certainly as an elder, if nothing else, uh, at that particular time. If he had no official capacity, he at least was there as an elder of the city. Lot had lived with Abraham. He had traveled with Abraham. He had come with Abraham all the way from Haran to Canaan, to Egypt, to back to Canaan. He had rubbed shoulders with this man of God. He knew of the God of Abraham. And we can tell by scriptural statements, particularly in the New Testament, they didn't only know of the God of Abraham, he knew the God of of Abraham, but we discover a spiritual declension here as we read these, ver these chapters in this particular portion of Genesis. If we think back for a minute, in chapter 13 of Genesis, first, what did Lot do? He acted very, very selfishly choosing what he thought was the best land and moving down into it and then edging ever closer towards Sodom. In chapter 14, we discover he moved into Sodom. He didn't just edge close to it and decide to send his tent up somewhere in the valley near it. He finally moved into Sodom itself. And finally, here in chapter 19, we discover he is sitting at the gate of the city, meaning that he was a person of some significance in the city of Sodom. Now, 
you and I well know that there's nothing intrinsically evil about living in a city. There is nothing intrinsically evil about being a city official either, or an elder, a person of significance in the city. Both Lot and Abraham had lived in cities. Abraham had lived in the city of Ur. Abraham had lived in the city of Haran. And, and both of those cities were cities of great significance. I mean, they far outshone Sodom. Sodom was just a tiny town compared to either Haran or the great metropolis of Ur. So obviously, being a city dweller is not in itself evil. The problem stems from the reason for choosing city life and particularly for the reason for choosing a specific city in which to live. Whatever Lot's reasons were, I think as we follow that transition from his breaking away from Abraham, moving down in the valley and ultimately ending up in Sodom, that he wasn't listening to God, that he wasn't following the Lord's leading. I think that just becomes obvious to us as we read through these passages and especially as we read this passage that we looked at already this morning. It would seem that he was drawn by the comforts, by the security. I mean, Sodom probably had a wall around it. By the busyness of city life. Some people just don't seem to be able to function unless they're, they're in the midst of busyness all the time. They like to, to have lots of people around and, and things to do. It, there's this, this old concept that if you live out in the country, you're bored to tears because you've got nothing to do. Well, if you're bored to tears because you've got nothing to do, it's in you that the problem is. <laughs> it's not in the country. <laughs> because there's lots to do if you've got a, a heart to look for it. Uh, in, in the city, there's, there's this constant hubbub all the time, and, and, and maybe that attracted him. Every once in a while, I talk to a student whom I think looks like a good country person, and they say, oh, I just love the city. I just want to live in the city. And I think, oh, well, okay. One of the nice things about writing is you can live in the city and feel like you're in the country, you know. <laughs> Apparently, Bedouin life didn't really sit too well with, uh, with, Abraham, uh, with, with Lot. He apparently didn't like that, I, that, that life of living out away from people and, and just raising sheep and goats and, and cattle and, and focusing in on that. Now, he may still have been uh, a raiser of those animals, but was sort of an absentee uh, landlord type person, hiring people to keep his animals out there, and maybe that was the source of his income. We aren't told here. We can assume that. But he didn't himself want to live out there in, in the tents and uh, live as the... Bedouins typically did. His motives were certainly selfish, but his choice of Sodom compounded the potential for spiritual decline. There are those who, who feel that by moving into a particular area or associating themselves in a particular relationship that they will because of their godly nature, change that other person or persons or co company or husband or wife that they intend to marry or, or whatever it is because their godliness will influence these others to become godly. Uh, and often that's the reverse is true. More often than not, the reverse is true. 
And what will happen is that the, quote, godly person will go into spiritual decline through the association with these godless people or society or mate or, or whatever it happens to be. So the motive is the real thing to look at here. Why did he move to Sodom? It's not that he was in Sodom, but why he moved there, which is the crucial thing here. I mean, Sodom had a widespread reputation as being a vile city. He knew that before he ever moved there. And we know he knew that after he moved there because in 2 Peter, Peter says that his, he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of these unprincipled men. He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of these unprincipled men. So he knew what kind of a city it was. He knew it before he ever moved into it, what kind of a city it was. So obviously his motives were not godly motives. He was chasing after his own fleshly desires. And that will get a person in trouble every single time. Now, as I mentioned before, the fact that he sat at the gate might have implied that he was an elder, an official of some sort, maybe even a judge uh, in, in this particular situation. And maybe he was willing to allow himself to be in that position because he thought he might bring some kind of righteous judgment to what was going on there. Well, <laughs> again, this doesn't seem to be very likely because it seems that there is no implication here in Scripture that he in any way showed to these people a godly character or that he in any way shared with them who the real God was, the true and the living God. There's no scriptural implication along that line at all. It would appear that he had simply become successful and was enjoying the prestige of being a wealthy man in this godless society with no other uh, proclamation of why he was wealthy or who the God was that he knew. Is this an Old Testament example of what Paul calls a carnal Christian? Well, let's turn to that passage in 1 Corinthians. A lot of people have a lot of trouble with this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not able, yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? In other words, like unregenerate people. Are you not walking like unregenerate people? And it goes, of course, he goes on to talk about them breaking up into sex. I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and whatever. And of course, we know from the study of the letters to the Corinthians that the Corinthian church had a lot of problems, not the least of which was a great deal of fleshliness within 
within the church. Are we, is there a category called carnal Christian? Well, that seems to be what Paul's implying here. Um, there are those who have real struggle with this. Who, there are those who believe there are only, there's only one kind of Christian, and that's the obedient, uh, godly Christian, that everybody else is not a Christian, no matter what they may think of themselves. But Paul seems to imply uh, by this, I think, that uh, as Christians, we are not all at the same point or at the same level. That just as a child is born and matures through many levels of understanding, all the way from a newborn infant to, to an adult, so we do as Christians too. And as newborn babes in Christ, we do not know very much about what it's like to be a mature Christian, and therefore we act in ways that are childish and are in effect fleshly. What becomes extremely disturbing, of course, is when someone has, quote, been in the faith for decades and still acts like a newborn babe in Christ. That's what really is disturbing. You expect a baby to act like a baby, but you don't expect a 50-year-old adult to act like a baby. And therefore, uh, this is where the, the rub comes. Is someone who has claimed to have been Christian for all these years still living in the flesh and acting in an ungodly manner? Is that person really a Christian? Was he ever a Christian? This is where the question comes in. Lot had not grown spiritually. He was still a spiritual infant. He was walking as a mere man in this situation. It seems quite obvious. He was not walking in the strength of the Lord. In looking at this particular passage and uh, trying to understand a little bit about Lot here, it seems to me that in many ways he's like many, he was like many that we find in the evangelical church in America today. People who want to know that they're saved and that they're bound for heaven because they have that sincere desire to not go to hell, and yet, they want all the creature comforts and all the stimulations that the world offers. They want, in effect, the best of both worlds. Fame, fortune, comfort in this life, and assurance of the next. It's quite a rational approach to things when you think about it for a minute. From the perspective of Scripture, however, people with that attitude are in grave danger. Let's turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3, a much preached on passage for obvious reasons. Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Good old Laodicean church. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, to the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. By the way, my understanding, and, and Dr. Walmart can uh, correct me here, is that uh, the word beginning there doesn't mean that he was, the, as the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, uh, the first thing that God created, but the word here is arche, which means the source, that he is the fountainhead of the creation of God, not the first thing God created. 
I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and the eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and what? Repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The implication, at least it would seem to me, of this particular count in Revelation is that those who are, quote, Christian fat cats, uh, those who feel that, uh, hey, you know, they're in like Flynn and, and they're enjoying all of the wonderful comforts and joys and stimulations and all the things that the world has to offer, they're out comforting their flesh uh, in the process of all of this, that they're in grave danger because they don't know that they're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. Those are not terms you apply to a godly person. They're terms that you apply to someone who thinks they're in like Flynn, but are not. People who call themselves Christian in the generic sense of the word. You know, we talk about all Christendom. We talk about the fact that there are 1.6 billion Christians in the world today. What do we mean by that? Well, everybody who lives in a country that has a Christian church, just about, is what we mean. Obviously, there aren't 1.6 billion Christians in the world today in the biblical sense of the word Christian. Probably a teeny fraction of that is what is actually true. And yet it would seem that what we're talking about here is a church of Christendom not a church of true believers. And that's why he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. And so it would seem that uh, today we are experiencing a church that is much like the Laodicean church. And, you know, probably most of you are aware of the fact that there are those who have <laughs> divided up the churches into periods of time, and they assume that this period in church history is represented by this church and this period and this period and this period, and it takes a little bit of screwing and pushing and pulling to try to make it fit that way. And I'm not saying that that's not a possibility, but I believe personally that all seven of these churches exist simultaneously at all times in church history. And we have godly churches today. We have Philadelphian churches today, but we have a lot of Laodicean churches also in the day in which we live. Fame and fortune and comforts are not to be the primary goals of the true Christian. Now, it's not that the Christian can't have those things. 
It's not that a Christian won't become famous. As you probably know, if you've read recently in the paper, I think it said that something like Billy Graham has been rated amongst the top ten people of the world for four decades now. Fame and fortune and comfort may come to a Christian, but that isn't the goal of the Christian. That should not be the goal of a Christian. It's not our purpose to become famous, wealthy, or comfortable. Even the poorest in the evangelical churches of America today are richer than more than 90% of the people who have ever lived on the surface of this planet. For us today to, to you know, woe is me is, is, is to deny the reality that as we sit here today, we're better off than probably 99% of the population that's ever lived on this planet. Think about it. You know, we really are. Because we not only have the knowledge of God and of Christ and of our salvation and hope and joy and peace, we sit here in creature comfort, don't we? It's warm in this room. We're all clothed. We're not naked. Uh, uh, we're not blind, I trust. You know, it, it, of course, it's referring primarily to spiritual blindness here, obviously, even though it takes off from the fact that there was a particular eye salve that had been developed in the Laodicean area, which was manufactured and sold out of Laodicea, and it was used as sort of an analogy here. I talk about this. The same way with the lukewarm water. I mean, Laodicea was watered with uh, volcanic water. And it came in, started out as hot water and came into the city as kind of yucky, lukewarm water. And uh, so it made a great uh, uh, example to use in, in the particular discussion here. Jesus is our example. And he made it clear that we are here to what? Serve or be served? We're here to serve, not to be served. And his purpose was to do the will of his Father. And that is to be our purpose too. I'd like to read from Titus chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now that is not a statement of universal salvation. That's the statement of the availability of salvation to all men, but not of the fact that all are going to be saved. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds, not good deeds accidentally happening along the way, but zealous to see that they happen. The scripture teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, not to seek them, not to wallow in them, not to live in the midst of them and enjoy the, uh, the sensual stimulation of them, but to deny them, something that it appears Lot did not understand. Now, Lot didn't revel in ungodliness. There's nothing to say that Lot participated in the evil of the city, but he tolerated it, and he allowed his family to be raised in the midst of it. 
And obviously, as a result, he did not have a godly family. We are commanded not only to not, not to live in an ungodly manner, but we're told to go to the other end of the spectrum and to live in a godly manner. We're not only not to do evil, we're to strive to do good. Not to see how close to the world we can walk and still be a Christian, but to go clear to the other side and to act and to live as Christ lived. This will produce consequences. I won't take time to turn to that 2 Timothy passage, but it basically tells us that those who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Uh, there are things that will happen that are not going to be pleasant to those who try to live that way. Well, let me bring it to a close by saying this. To Lot's credit is the fact that he did meet the two strangers and he did invite them to come home. And what's interesting is the Hebrew here is a lot stronger than that. As I read in the passage, it says he urged them strongly. The Hebrew uh, of this passage uh, basically teaches us that he pressed them with great force. <laughs> he didn't say, please come home with me. He says, you're coming home with me. In, a, in effect, implying he may even grab their togas and said, come with me. Because he knew how dangerous it was in the city. And to stay overnight in the square? Absurd. Absolutely absurd. There would be no security in that at all. So he was going to at least offer them the security of his home. And he hoped, of course, that the Sodomites would respect the hospitality that he had granted to the strangers within the door of his own house. But as we'll note next week, and as we already saw as we read the passage, before they could even lay down for the night, a scene of incredible depravity developed. And I, I have a hard time getting over the eighth verse of that particular chapter, and we'll talk about it a little bit next week, but this man Lot is not to be looked upon as being a good guy here because he wanted to protect these angels. Um, he was acting in an extremely selfish manner in even that action.